When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... (laughs) Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) Hello, Mark Kenny here, and welcome back after an unusual two-week break where I hope you availed yourself of one of my recommendations from our 200-episode back catalogue. Well, the votes have finally been counted and the parliamentary calendar for the remainder of 2022 has been released. A surprisingly thin roster of just eight sitting weeks compared to a pretty light 10-week worksheet for the previous Morrison government when it was returned in 2019 at about the same time of year. Clearly, the new Albanese government wants to get its ducks in a row before exposing itself to the parliament's now multiple axes of power, with a 16-strong crossbench in the reps and an 18-strong crossbench in the even smaller Senate. Among those 16 MPs downstairs are seven MPs broadly defined as Teals, people who hold what we now, what we know are what were safe Liberal heartland seats. McKellar, Goldstein, Wentworth, Kuyong, North Sydney and Curtin. Uh, Warringah as well retained, uh, as it happens, by Zali Stegel after she had that breakthrough win unseating Tony Abbott in 2019. Now, Dr. Maria Tafaga, who is with us each week, um, there's a lot to talk about in this election, of course, as I've just mentioned a few of those things. I'm sure we're going to be kept busy uh, analysing the, the 20, uh, 2022 election for many months yet. But not least of those uh, uh, sort of amazing developments from the 2022 election is the arrival of all of these highly credentialed uh, female candidates. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it is... An interesting milestone to see, uh, I guess, the sort of celebrated entry into Parliament of so many women that might be akin to what happened in 1996 um, when uh, many women were elected uh, to office as part of John Howard's electoral victory, uh, many against sort of expectation and, uh, you know, Many of those women had a sort of similar background to the women we saw elected at the 2022 election. Um, 
sort of signalling perhaps a a shift in the weather that has sort of seen um, a change in where these kinds of professional women seek to enter politics. That's a really fascinating point. I haven't heard anyone else make that, that sort of comparison with 96. It was far less about, at least openly, about gender back then and about issues uh, that differentiated those candidates. They were party candidates who came in uh, as part of that uh, that big sort of avalanche that that uh, installed John Howard. So it was there were, there were some quite different characteristics about it, but nonetheless, it was as you say a, a pretty interesting sort of weather change in in the in the um, political firmament. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that stage. Um Political parties, or the Liberal Party in particular, but Labor had about the same amount of representation, a little bit better. Went from about 5%, I think Labor had 8, eight to, to 20% representation. So it was a huge jump, uh, sort of a sea change jump. And to give you some context, I mean, the UK pretty much only achieved similar results when um, David Cameron was elected in, in 2010. Um, so, and uh, even though it wasn't necessarily, I suppose, like a deliberate strategy uh, or ex- I think more explicit strategy is the better word on the part of the coalition because there was a recognition within the Liberal Party at that time that women made excellent uh, community candidates or which is the nice name for it, which was really just marginal seat um, candidates. Yeah, well, they I was going to say they- that because that's actually an important point here, isn't it? The, this was a yes. this was a landslide win by John Howard's Liberals uh, to displace the to replace the the unpopular Keating government at that stage. Labor had been in power for thirteen years, so this was a real sea change election. There was a huge shift across to the conservative side, and a number of women who were in seats that arguably they weren't necessarily expected to win or wouldn't be expected to win in your sort of average election, uh, and but they came in in numbers then. So how much can we exactly. put it down to uh, sort of – how much can we put it down to forward thinking or deliberate policy by the Libs um, who, after all, don't have centralised pre-selections is one of the things they like to pride themselves on that they – you know that this is all done at uh, at the division level and at and at individual federal electorate level the the selection of candidates so we can't pay place too much on that can well we? i think there were deliberate strategies by uh at least the New South Wales and Victorian divisions, and that's you know where a majority of the seats are, right? Sure. Especially at the, those days, to select and put more women into. Uh, winnable seats, right, which is another – it's a nice way of saying marginal seats. Um, so there was like an element of coordination there and, um, you know, I don't think um, – you know, I think Howard was proud of the achievement as well because if you recall, Labor had just introduced its quota and, of course, female representation within the Labor Party went backwards at the 1996 election because, you know, women were well, so did everything seats. else. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And so, and so it was a huge coup for the Liberal way if you think about it, right? You know, mm. not quotas, not telling people what to do, but, you know, merit and uh, training and uplifting and upskilling and providing opportunity to women. And I guess that's the real irony is that the Liberal Party has really struggled to move beyond that um, 20% 
marker in the years since 1996. I think the best they might have achieved at the federal level might have been 22. And they've actually been going backwards. Uh, and they went backwards again at this election. Uh, and instead, the, um, you know, uh, these teal candidates have actually stormed the barricades of the the jewels, the, the jewels in the crown, um, and they lost Higgins to Labor, which is kind of unthinkable. Yeah, um, but yeah. they have, right? Um, Peter Costello's old seat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, like it's a, in, if, one way of reading it might be. Um, uh, dimensions of complacency and organizational uh, drift and, and an inability to solve problems, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't mean capital P problems, but just organizational yeah. uh, problems to broker solutions to sort of solve a difficult um, problem. I mean, one of the things that I think has been so interesting about that debate in the Liberal Party is that um so often the reason given for not sort of taking, I guess, a more uh, organisationally forward, i.e. quota-driven approach is that it's, quote, a labour yeah. solution. And so that ideological kind of dimension, well, I guess wasn't really serving uh, potential candidates in, you know, these heartland seats that the Liberal Party had. And so they are very good at organising. They turned out to be great community candidates, took matters into their own hands. They certainly did. And we, we, we're just about to talk about that because, but it is an interesting point that the, the Liberals do see that as a, as a Labor solution, the idea of quotas, the idea of controlling this centrally even uh, as um as anathema, even though in the end that's what they did in New South Wales, uh, essentially uh, using executive fiat to, um, to you know, to impose candidates. But uh, um, yeah, there's been that sort of argument that uh, Labor has a uh, a national structure and the Liberals have a federal structure, and, the, and those the states and the individual electorates are, are are sort of autonomous and they have that power, and therefore you can't. There might be 13 electorates up for, for candidate selection and you can't guarantee that six or seven of those are going to be women because you can only do that if you have central control. That's been the, the sort of philosophical argument, although it's perhaps just a, um, uh, a, you know, a convenient argument really for not wanting to do anything, which, which might characterize a number of its responses. That is the, the, the coalition's responses to some pretty persistent policy questions as well that, um, might explain their uh, pretty terrible result at the last election. Now, look, a couple of weeks ago, I read a really fascinating piece from a man called Ed Coper, and it was titled in the in the Herald anyway, Secrets from the Teal's Digital War Room. We created a direct line to voters, and now TV political ads are dead. Ed Coper is the director of, or as a director of Populares, the communication agency responsible for the digital advertising campaign for the major teal independent campaigns. And I'm really delighted that he is joining us now on Democracy Sausage. Welcome, Ed. Thank you very much, Mark and Maria and Democracy Sausage. It's great to be here. Terrific. Now, I, I wonder if we could just start by um, inviting you just to explain what your role was uh, for those people who, who, who are unaware of uh, what level of, I, I suppose, coordination there was in the digital campaigns or information sharing. What, what role did you play in that? 
Oh, well, of course, the, the idea that there was great coordination across these campaigns was one that was a line that was run by their opponents. Uh, but, but our role really were, were as professional service providers um, who could specialise in something that all of these very accomplished uh, candidates in their own fields of work had done amazing things. But of course, they all had one thing in common. They'd never run a political campaign before. Uh, so that's what Popularis was able to provide some professional services around, both on uh, the strategy and putting a campaign together. Uh, but more specifically, as part of that campaign strategy, we always recommended a digital first approach to advertising because we think of that as uh, being particularly innovative and effective for persuasion. Um, and really some opportunities that the, the major parties don't take uh, are there for the taking. And so that became a large part of uh, the strategy for these teal campaigns was to use digital advertising to turn uh, what were completely upstart and unknown uh, campaigns into ones that could, could compete on a level pegging with the major party candidates. It's really fascinating that uh, the, the whole sort of challenge, I suppose, from from your perspective, from an advertising perspective, the challenge of how to mount campaigns in these sorts of places. I guess marginal seat constituents are used to um, uh, having you know intense political campaigns fought each each election time, but a lot of these were essentially you know they're described as strongholds, they're safe liberal seats, uh, lifelong. Liberal voters, who uh, in some cases, in many cases, presumably are people who are fairly disengaged normally from the political process. Uh, the election campaigns rage on in other places, but are less intense in in the in these seats, generally speaking, because the result is regarded as fait accompli. But you were about turning that whole thing around. Well, those candidates were, and you were about finding ways to get that message across and really reach people who otherwise weren't engaged. Well, that's right. And if you were a voter in most of these seats, you're not subjected to the onslaught of a, of a marginal seat campaign. Um, and of course, the, the main people who were, were caught napping in that regard were the incumbent candidates themselves. Most of them weren't used to having to wage uh, really fierce campaigns to hold on to their own seats. Uh, where they were high profile, like Josh Frydenberg, his role during an election campaign is obviously to go to other seats and to bring uh, what the party views as his popularity and talent uh, to the local candidate and uh, not spend it in his home seat of Kuyong. Uh, whereas if you're someone like Jason Falinski in McKellar, you really haven't had to do that much campaigning before. So yes, that's true of the voter voters, but it was also true of the incumbents. And uh, one of the main differences that we brought to our approach is that marginal seat voters don't like political campaigns because they get whacked over the head with a message that doesn't really resonate with them. Whereas if you can find a form of messaging and content and have that as your advertising that really aligns with what your voters' values are and how they think, they don't see it as an imposition at all. Uh, a lot of the ads we were serving on Facebook and Instagram would get shared by the people we're advertising to, which, you know, I don't think anyone would voluntarily share Clive Palmer's election ads <laughs> other than to, you know, critique them and mock them. So the fact that you can serve a marginal seat voter something that they find so compelling that they want to show it to their friends uh, really speaks to the, the different type of advertising that the Teal campaigns were running and the different type of campaigns they were running writ large. 
Maria, it, uh, it, it's interesting the point Ed just made about the candidates themselves being somewhat caught on the hop, not really used to fighting these fierce campaigns because they, they've had such a buffer there. I presume that would have been the case also for their machines, you know, their their, their branch members and, and their general, you know, the protocols, if, if that's what they call them, that they would go through setting up a campaign, the number of, you know, core flutes they'd get done and, the, you know, the you know the, the ad, the ad they'd place in a couple of the local papers and a few of the other things, but it'd be pretty low energy compared to what would be needed suddenly when they're under siege. Yeah, though... I, I don't know, but I would suspect that a lot of people in those seats would effectively act as shock troops to go out for marginal campaigns. I mean, someone like Josh Frydenberg, for example, he would be raising hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah. which would then be used to fight in other sort of seats. Um, so, it, you know, I, so I it could be the case that there might not be the sort of um, understanding of how to fight that kind of campaign in Kuyong, but that knowledge might be within the organisation. It, it just meant that they simply couldn't then fight in McNamara or in Higgins properly or um, or wherever. I mean, I, that's mm. actually, I think, a really interesting question um, which someone who might want to do like a PhD um, could um, or, uh, you know, could, could find out because – you know, perhaps perhaps someone like Katie Allen who has less experience campaigning, um, you know, maybe that made a big difference. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's a, well, it's, it, it's a good question. Sorry, I was just going to make this quick point, Ed, that just in relation to Katie Allen, she's just the type of person who could have easily been one of the Teal candidates. Um, and, yeah, or and Fiona it, Martin. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Ed, go on. Well, you know, Maria's absolutely right. You know, the, the what does the campaign machinery do on the ground where your volunteers and donors and, and electorate office and others aren't really used to campaigning? Well, the answer to what they did largely here was a, a reflexive thing of going into your bar, bag of party tricks that you normally pull out during a campaign. Now, unfortunately, the main trick in the bag of party tricks is getting the prime minister to come to your marginal electorate. Now, (laughs) of course, that that would have been manna from heaven for the Teal candidates. In fact, uh, when when Allegra Spender announced in Wentworth, uh, they hadn't cottoned onto this yet. And the first thing that happened was Scott Morrison went to a local public school with Dave Sharma and then announced a recycling initiative, which I think just showed to the voters, not just the unpopularity of, of Scott Morrison, that but also that he didn't understand the difference between climate change policy and, and recycling. So, you know, the, the, these local campaigns uh, had this reflexive response of, of just going back to what, what they always knew, and that was to buy up traditional advertising, uh, try to bring in high-profile proxies that were viewed as popular uh, even when the Prime Minister couldn't be one of them, uh, and, and really roll out a paint-by-numbers campaign. And you know, you had to feel sorry for them sometimes in, in, a, in a seat like Kuyong where Monique Ryan had over 3,000 volunteers by the end of it. It was a campaign of shock and awe. You couldn't walk down the street there without, uh, you know, being overwhelmed by the number of people in her T-shirt where, um, you know, to Maria's point before, you know, normally the volunteers in those seats for the Liberal Party might go elsewhere. They had to do the reverse. They had to get, uh, you know, young Liberal members from seats outside of these electorates and bust them in to just to have enough people to to staff pre-poll. Yeah, and that's like a metaphor really for the for for the broader campaign challenge that Scott Morrison and 
Frydenberg and the leadership team faced as well, isn't it? That they were fighting an election in their in their homelands as well as fighting it in in the contested spaces around the country. Um, you know, fighting on a number of fronts, fighting different fights in Queensland from from Victoria, which is the normal problem, but also fighting on their on their um, as I say on their homelands for their own safe normal assets that they hold on to. That must have been extremely difficult. I wanted to come back to uh, something you made, uh, a comment you made before, Ed, about the the digital campaigning and the sort of surgical specialised nature that you could make of it. Um, because i just quote from your, your piece that you had in the Herald. You say, all told, digital ads on social media, YouTube, Google searches and websites promoting independence was seen more than 100 million times. The voters in Kuyong, for example, saw an online ad promoting Monique Ryan an average of 251 times each over the course of the campaign. Uh, that That's, that's a, a lot of communicating and a lot of very targeted communicating. Is that the sort of secret here? Yeah, it's it's a large part of the secret. Um, one thing is, uh, you know, and you would know as political scientists that Voter contacts are not particularly persuasive in any form, but any form of uh, of contact is persuasive over time. Uh, and so, if you can get the volume of, uh, of voter contacts as high as you can, then the, the persuasive effect of them also increases. But all of those those voter contacts were not um, were not equal as well. You, you know, some forms of advertising are more uh, more persuasive than others. Uh, when you see what is really a digital billboard on a website? You might be on the Canberra Times website and and see a, a display ad for something and not pay it much heed. Um, it's very different experience to you know when you're scrolling through your Facebook feed and you see uh, something that resonates with you, which may be sponsored by the the, the local candidate. Um, so they were all not uh, not equal contacts, but. Um, those 250, uh, on average, contacts in, in Kuyong, for example, were spread out over a much longer time than the major parties treat an election campaign. That was not over six weeks. Uh, that was over more like five months. Um, and that was one of the other real innovations there, that because you do not have the backing of a party brand that is known, because you're not a household name uh, and you're not uh, known to the to the voters of your electorate, your your primary starts at zero. Whereas you know a Liberal Labor candidate could stay at home all day in their socks and and still get you know above twenty percent primary. So you have to fight for every piece of primary, and that will happen over over the medium and long term, not in a six week period. So that's really what we had to do was not just serve a, a great volume of Im- of impressions of of the content, but do it over the long term as well. Yeah, it's a really good point that that whole um, and you talk about the persuade the persuasion window uh, that um, uh, you have for convincing someone for convincing a voter of a, of a particular message of getting through to them and the and the the major parties in this case the Liberal Party just sort of went missing over the summer holidays period and these candidates were out there and their digital campaigns were out there uh, connecting and 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 trying to build that relationship with voters right through that period. Yeah, part of that is is political convention too. You know that that Australians don't want to be bothered with politics while they're on summer holiday, while they're at the beach, or you know around a Christmas table. 
and uh, and also these people work in very taxing jobs and they take time off over over December and January. Mm. Um, but the teal campaigns just simply didn't have that luxury. They they only announced it around that time. Depending, you know, they all announced at different times, but that kind of November, December, January window was when most of them launch their campaigns and you really had to come out of the gate strongly not just to get the uh, name recognition and awareness up there but also to convey the the image that you have a big campaign with lots of grassroots supporters which which they all did but you need to communicate that message you need to get your core flutes out there get people in t-shirts you want them talking about your campaign around the christmas table not uh, just talking about you know the latest pop culture thing um, and they've got to know that you're running, uh, and uh, and that's fairly straightforward uh, exercise. But you have to first acknowledge that the persuasion window is much broader than a six week period. You know, part of this is the legacy of the fact that with compulsory voting, the the parties believe that elections are decided by people who will not switch onto politics uh, until best case scenario a couple of weeks before polling day. Now, teal seat uh, voters are not switched off from politics. These are very politically engaged people. They're people who f- follow political news year-round, even during summer, even when they're at the beach. And so that was another example of where you couldn't take the political orthodoxy of how you win a, an Australian election and just apply it to the TLC. You had to do things differently. So, Ed, can I ask about this, right? Because, you know, you're, you're actually you're so, you're talking about a very different category of voter, right? Like we would, you know, if, from a political science perspective, we, you know, we would kind of call this the elite of, of society in terms of wealth and in, in terms of education. Um, you know, we're talking about the top sort of quintile um, of uh, people here. So I presume there must have been a dimension of education around, I guess, normalising voting outside of the sort of political um, mainstream. So what did that look like? But what were, I guess, the other kinds of... Um, dimensions of the campaign and the messaging, the images? Well, I think it started with a, a very important realisation that seems to escape the, the major parties. And, you know, I've worked on political campaigns for a long time. It's always struck me as odd that uh, that the parties don't seem to realise that 50% of the electorate vote. Um, and, of course, that it, that is women. And so you will see also that the the, the Teal candidates largely had something in, in common with that they themselves were professional women. And I think one of the consequences of, of their campaigns and also the way the Liberal Party re- treated their campaigns and responded to their campaigns was that it created a new constituency, constituency of professional women uh, in, these, uh, in these seats which are uh, more politically engaged, higher educated and generally higher income. And so it's important that the, the candidate reflects uh, the community that they come from, and I and I think Fowler's a, a good example outside of the the so called teal seats that that demonstrated that. But likewise, in these seats, you had professional women who uh, were appealing to people who had largely been ignored by the government, and uh, in in fact often disparaged by them. And and when they when they announced their candidacies. And the reaction of the conservative media and their liberal opponents or, you know, all their heroes like John Howard, when they were dismissed as groupies or fakes or not serious candidates, a lot of professional women recognised those insults in things that they face in their day-to-day life. And it completely backfired. And that's just unfortunately not 
where Australian politically political campaigns are typically fought, appealing to those people. It's a very powerful blo- voting block, and they delivered a very strong rejection of the government uh, because these campaigns connected with them and really appealed to the base that they are representing. Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking about insulting the electors a minute ago, Ed was, and it's a, an area I want to go to now because that uh, that um, those words by John Howard uh, describing the Teals as political groupies, uh, I, someone stopped me in the street, a chap here in Canberra, and made the point that uh, in the 60s that had a particular meaning. And it, it, I mean, I think he's right. I mean, it, 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 it struck me when I heard it as a pretty, pretty outrageous comment. Uh, I think people saw it in its in its more innocent form, but even in its more innocent form, it was, um, you know, completely dismissive, as Ed was just saying. Um, I, I wonder whether all of these things were carried by voters, Ed, as as insults directly, uh, di- you know, directed at them. Uh, you remember at one stage. Scott Morrison said net zero won't be won't be achieved uh, in the in the dinner parties, cafes and wine bars of the inner cities for example. Um at various other times you know as you say they they're talking about fake independence um about them being a party and so forth. And it was all a sort of a the, the tone of all of this was belittling the issues that were that were um, these these candidates were very clearly very clearly articulating, and they were articulating them uh, in in a, in a very efficient manner. You know, they were talking about climate change. They were talking about the representation and treatment of women in politics and in society. They were talking about the integrity issue, uh, corruption in politics, and so forth. They weren't, you know, talking about a million other things. They were very disciplined about it. Uh, and and yet you had people from the uh, from the mainstream, including a number of people in media. I you know I was surprised by the by the naivety of some of this, uh, or the mendacity of some of it, frankly. Um, but you know, treating these candidates as if they were somehow sort of an adolescent kind of political manifestation that they were dupes and so forth. Did did your research pick up that that's the way some of these voters were responding to that kind of discourse? Yeah, absolutely, it did, and all of those observations were were things that um, I think were borne out in, in the eventual results. It wasn't just a matter of um, making these the voters in these seats feel belittled, but but belittled. Those reactions that you mentioned reinforced the concerns they had about the government to begin with. Uh, they were they were 
really um, rejecting the the way that the government had handled these issues. And when the government then rejected the candidates in the same kind of, you know, not just flippant, but sometimes, uh, you, you know, really mendacious way, as you say, um, then that just reinforced exactly the concerns that, that people had about those issues and about the government and about Scott Morrison in the first place. And, of course, we got the ultimate proof point of that when, uh, when the captain's pick of Catherine Deves um, w- was a- almost, um, you know, boasting uh, about the, the, the reason that was done to spurn the teal seats who, who had much more progressive social values in order to cynically pick up uh, seats in, in some of the outer marginals, especially in Western Sydney, where they viewed that that sort of thing would be popular. Now, that just reinforced exactly why people in, in the teal seats had turned off the the candidates to begin with. And, and, and as to your point about how the media treated this, I, I think they fell into the same trap as the parties did, which they didn't have a blueprint for this type of political campaign, for swinging voters in these types of seats and for these types of, of genuinely independent uh, professional candidates. And so they tried to apply the same commentary that normally applies to uh, to, to the mainstream political campaigns in in Australian elections, which of course are Labor Liberal marginals. And they tried to see conspiracy there. Well, they couldn't just be a bunch of of grassroots campaigns. There must be some faceless men directing it all because of course women couldn't be independently successful. And and the fundraising, of course, became all about uh, Climate 200 and and Simon Holmes Accord, where none of the same scrutiny was placed on Santos or BHP, of course, who provide exactly um, the same type of support to to the other candidates, so it, it was just a bit of a square peg in a round hole. And and credit to the voters in those seats, they they saw through the media coverage and they saw through the the uh, the liberal criticism of these seats, and they saw these campaigns for what they were, which was genuine from the community and aligned with their values, and also an avenue for them to have a better voice in Canberra. It's an interesting kind of reckoning and a rejection of the politics of of cynicism in the sense that. Uh, you know, you saw sort of genuine on the ground, human to human personal connections, networks of utilizing those kinds of family and, and kinship and, and friendship connections that's, that's more redolent, right, of an earlier era of politics. And that was sort of pitted against the ultimate kind of cynicism in terms of how we have come to see how politics is done, right? You know, like divide groups, divide and conquer, uh, look for wedges, uh, call voters punters, treat everything like a game, not worry about what happens between elections because ultimately, you know, it's only the voters that are going to decide in the last 10 days that that kind of um, count. Um, And I guess, uh, you know, the campaigns that we saw in those um, teal seats is a kind of reckoning, right? Um, that politics does actually matter, and that community organisation does actually matter, and that if you want to see improvements, you actually have to participate. Yeah, that representation matters. That you can, you don't have to vote liberal just because your parents did, and you always have. That there are, you know, there are some big issues that the country is facing that the world is facing, the country is facing, the local area is facing, and they can be things can be done differently. 
And it doesn't mean that you have to go off and vote Labor if you've always been a Liberal voter, but you might want to actually vote for this candidate because this candidate is driven by these issues. And that message seemed to just sort of crack the whole the whole duopoly uh, and just sort of crack that facade that uh, that was there that um, uh, sort of a lot of people hadn't left simply because I suppose they hadn't had those options in the past and things hadn't got to this stage. But uh, people come along and they do politics differently. I noticed that Sophie Scomps, for example, in, in McKellar, uh, just as a, a, an aside in terms of campaign strategy, she didn't even have a campaign launch. She had a campaign rock concert up in Avalon and uh, she had um, uh, Lime Cordial and Angus and Julia Stone playing there, um, in, you know, playing in front of a banner that had her name on it. And she was introduced at one stage and said a few things, but there was just this, from all the accounts I heard, there was this just this mass of energy and goodwill around this, um, and it just felt like a different kind of politics. And this was, of course, quite popular with younger voters, many of whom were very connected with the idea of... Um, candidates actually doing something on climate change uh, and a candidate, you know, the MP from the area that they lived in actually standing up for it. Uh, and so, yeah, this this willingness to do politics differently, to meld the old school, as you say, Maria, with the tools of the digital age in terms of communication and, and uh, the opportunities that that provides to get the best of both of those two things and just go around the old sluggish machines of politics. Yeah, I think what's actually kind of most interesting and I think um, we need some work done to kind of link all these things together. But if we kind of look at the sort of sub-national level, right, and at, at the level of local government, we actually can see that there has been for some time now, um, a lot of grassroots activism, right? Like there's all this discussion right now about, well, New South Wales and Victoria aren't, you know, producing enough gas. And the reason for that is local level activism and coordination, often by uh, women who are concerned about the environment, um, to sort of stop uh, this type of development or, you know, in the case of Victoria, to sort of spur along uh, green energy, like to the point where the, the state government there actually had to develop a framework to kind of deal with the fact that all of these local councils were kind of going their own way in terms of um, green energy, small-scale developments. And so, I suppose what we're sort of seeing as as uh, the sort of professional politicians and, uh, you know, a, a media pack that hasn't been, uh, I guess, really paying attention to what politics is like other than Canberra, kind of missing, uh, you know, all of these kinds of connections kind of being made as the political system and its inability at the national level to sort of resolve key pressing issues, um, that kind of ground squell of those um, skills. So whilst, I mean, I'd really like to know your your insights on this, Ed, like, you know, whilst none of these uh, women who were teal candidates necessarily had much experience running these campaigns, like I presume there were people in their campaign machines and in their organisations that did know a little bit about this and were able to impart some of that um, knowledge, you know. Um, can, you, can you tell us a bit more about that or am I barking up the wrong tree? <laughs> no, no. You're absolutely right. This, you know, broadly p political campaigning and, and politics is a is an industry that's that's ripe for disruption. You know, you've got people looking around for, you know, what are these industries that uh, 
that that need updating and then they'll launch some fancy new product with with venture backing and, and make a lot of money um it, it, politics is right for destruction uh, disruption in the same way because uh it's been done uh, in, in a particular way for a long time and uh and the way that it has been done has gotten quite far out of step with with how people want it done and so uh, you're right it was both old and new you know the the tactics were very new and innovative but the campaigns were were very retro in a in a sense you know we're talking about a basic principle which is how our parliaments are structured and designed uh, is that people will represent their constituencies whether that's their state in the senate or their local area in the uh, in the lower house and that's the platform that these candidates ran on and it was very successful because uh, that's at the end of the day how people want uh, politics to be done and we're we're at a very uh, dangerous inflection point in australia and, and other similar democracies where People can go one of two ways. Where you have people who, where you have political elites who want to exploit people's dissatisfaction with politics, uh, you get the situation you have with with Trump supporters in the states, um, which can obviously be quite harmful. Uh, where you have political elites who who want to reclaim the integrity of our existing political system, then that is also very successful and obviously much healthier, which is what the Teals represented in Australia. But we should make no mistake that it could go both ways in Australia here. And, and Clive Palmer spent a, a lot of money uh, trying to trying to do the former and and carve out a rump of people who are very disaffected uh, over issues like vaccine mandates and and lockdowns and form a new political constituency around that. And we were very fortunate that that he was very ham-fisted in that attempt and it ultimately wasn't successful. But that's not to say it won't be successful in the future. So the importance of uh, the, the Teals are not just in the seats that they ran in, but also to demonstrate to others that it is incredibly powerful and politically successful to connect with the values that your local uh, voters share. So we saw the protests from people like Dave Sharma who said, but I share your values, I share your values, I just don't vote that way in Parliament. <laughs> and people didn't buy it. They didn't buy this argument that the media were, were pushing that that if you kept these people in Parliament, you'd make the Liberal Party more moderate and taking them out of Parliament, you'd make it more uh, right wing. Well, if that was the case, they, they probably would have held onto their seats. But, but they, that was not a hypothetical. The Liberal Party had already moved to a point that was significantly out of step with the, the voters' values in their seats. And all it took was a candidate to come along and say, I'm a good person, I will act with integrity, and I share your values on climate change, integrity, the treatment of women. And th in months, that turned very safe Liberal seats into uh, what are pretty healthy margins now. And, and uh, you know, look at Zali Stegall um, and, and also the, the course of political history that shows that these, uh, once they flip to an independent, it's very hard to get them back and I think their margins will increase. Especially and, when and they're, they're, they're this kind of quality of independent. They're not just sort of people who kind of came out of nowhere and through a whole range of external circumstances have sort of ended up there. And we've seen a few people come in and out of the parliaments over the years from those kind of 
kind of unique circumstances, but these are really very high quality candidates when you high quality MPs when you compare them with the 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 stock of people they're in, you know, of of MPs that are that are traditionally there. And you would expect unless unless one or two of them decide after a term that look, I actually don't like being an MP. Uh, I guess that's always possible, but. If 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 they're if they're determined to stay there and they and they stay true to their word and they work hard, I would have thought they would be very hard to dislodge. And then it becomes pretty hard, Ed, to imagine the Liberals getting to seventy six seats without getting these teals back, unless they have some big gains elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's right. And and you know, you'd love to be a fly on the wall on their their strategy meetings post election. And obviously, Peter Dutton came straight out of the gate saying that we're going to abandon big business as as the strategy there, which is a little bit of a tacit endorsement that they don't expect to win back those uh, yeah. those seats that really are the seats of big business. And, and you're right; these candidates are all have all been incredibly successful in their own fields. You know, Monique Ryan was the head of pediatric neurology, one of the you know globally recognised leaders in her field. Um, you know, Allegra Spender had had run uh, Carla Zampatti, which is a which is a very large business, and also her own uh, um, businesses as well. And 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 they all uh, are. Um, very smart, very capable. They're not political staffers who have just done their time and 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 want to go into into parliament, uh, you know, by right. So the and, and I think they'll do a very good job. So so yes, they will they will be around for a long time. Now that large caveat that you mentioned is is worth um, talking about because of course it speaks to the problem that uh, parliament is not a very nice place and mm. um, and and especially for women. And it will really uh, be interesting to see in this term of parliament if one of the other uh, changes that the election brought was was whether that environment can get better for women um, so that where you have good talent like these Teal candidates, uh, well, Teal MPs now, that they can hang around for longer and, and not get burnt by what is a really nasty environment. So I hope that is the case. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Uh, from where I used to sit uh, behind the speaker there in the press gallery for many years, uh, the parliament had a, a visual uniformity to it, a lot of blue suits Every you know dotted in amongst them the color that uh, that women tend to wear that more colorful um, outfits. But there's now going to be on that on that curve of that horseshoe a large contingent of crossbenchers, the overwhelming majority of them women. And I think just visually that's going to change the feel of the parliament, as indeed will the way. Uh, they conduct themselves, but I think it's it's you know it's going to be really fascinating to watch the atmospherics and and one hopes that we don't have a situation where some of these people decide this place is too uh, it's just too awful to work in and I don't want to you know spend too much of my life here and and go off and do something else. I suppose that's always possible. I think that a lot of it will depend on. How, met, how many rules the, the Labor Party changes, right? Like Tony Burke has reflected, has sort of reflected the result in sort of saying that they'll tweak aspects of the standing orders, but I imagine that it won't go as far as, as, as really does sort of need to be the case in, in, um, the parliament. I, I do want to sort of, um, 
make can I, can, sorry, about- just before you do that, Maria, just yeah. just to clarify the point you're making there. So you're talking about access to questions in question time, and and probably more importantly, the ability to get private members private members uh, bills debated properly in the in the parliament, which essentially has been impossible for backbenchers and crossbenchers in the past. So those sorts of things, making gi- giving them an actual genuine participatory stake in the running of the house, in the in the business of the house. Yes, precisely, precisely. So, I mean, you can have all the will in the world, but if you if the rules aren't there to allow it to happen, then it then it, you know it simply won't happen. Yeah. That said, though, like you know, I, I mean, it's in Labor's interests to keep the teals in place, right? Because as you guys kind of made the point, um, it certainly makes it hard for the coalition to win. Um, you know, I, I think it's kind of interesting that Dutton's um, declared strategy is basically to go after Labor's base. Um, mm. you know, and to chip off seats from Labor. I mean, I think this is a an interesting strategy in the sense that, you know, I guess in Victoria where they were expecting a large um, lockdown vote, yeah, Labor still won those seats by sometimes like almost 17%. So I I do yes I do it's, it's interesting that, uh, Christina Keneally made the point whether whether this is right or not I guess we can't know at this stage but she felt that the uh, lockdown rules had been particularly um, you know uh, unpopular and harsh on the electors in Fowler and that it wasn't just that she was a parachute candidate it was that there was a lot of sort of overhang umbrage from uh, from the pandemic. That uh, that fueled the anti-major um, party vote in that seat. Uh, so it, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, as you say, what didn't show up so much in other places. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, so I guess it remains to be sort of seen. I mean, um, it is an. In- I mean, I I honestly think it's. I don't see how anyone che- wanting to form national government can really govern without business. They're just too powerful. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe Peter Dutton will prove us wrong. Well, Ed, I imagine if you are the Liberal Party and you're thinking about uh, trying to get these seats back, even if Peter Dutton's given up on it, I imagine the Victorian Liberal branch will be still wanting to get back some of its, uh, you know, most treasured territory. Uh, but it'd be, it'd be a big ask, wouldn't it, to find candidates who are sufficiently good uh, who can get out there in the field a lot longer than six weeks before the next poll and and who can present uh, a manifesto or a, or a formula to electors that is sufficiently different from the uh, incumbent teal candidate that you know somehow positioned in between that conservative uh, traditional liberal position and and the teal candidate, it's pretty hard. To, it strikes me that really the only conditions in which they become vulnerable is is if the Labor government is in so much trouble at some point, which of course does happen in politics. But you know, as we've just seen it, when a government's unpopular, big tectonic sort of or tidal you know um, sort of sweeps can happen. Perhaps that's the only way that this ends, if uh, if 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 it ends at all. Yes, and and it should all remind us that nobody's crystal ball will, knows what big big changes around the corner. Yeah. But on what we know now, it, it will be incredibly difficult for the Liberal Party to regain those seats, especially if they do it through politics as usual, which for them is one national message that they think is 
targeted to the lowest common denominator uh, and then giving their their local candidates and members no latitude to to depart from from that message and campaign uh, we've seen the results of that that's what led them into this situation um, so thinking they can fix this fix this on a local level without fixing what problems the the national party uh, as in the, the the liberal party and also largely the, their problem is the national party capital n um, then uh, then they w- they won't be able to 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 get these seats back um, if they decided that the electoral map uh, actually saw uh, as many gains for them to make in the inner cities as it did in the outer suburbs and the, and the regions then they might change their um, th- their positioning but what you've seen is is their instincts are telling them to do the other thing, and and I think Maria is exactly right that that thing at the moment is to go after the traditional labour base that we have seen departing uh, labour over the last few cycles, and you know this is not a problem that's new for labour. They've faced exactly this type of wedge in the inner city uh, on the green seats, and um, obviously that's another story for from this election. Mm. Um, I don't think it's an unrelated story. I think. Um, I think what the presence of the teal candidates did was was to raise the profile yeah. of climate change as a as a national issue as part of the coverage of this election and in cities like Brisbane where you didn't have teal candidates I think a lot of that flowed through to the greens and and that's territory that labor is used to dealing with this is the first time the liberal party has had to deal with the same kind of dynamic and uh and work out if they can speak out of both sides of their mouth at the same time which they have not shown themselves capable uh to do and they certainly didn't in this campaign yeah yeah that's a it's a very good point can we just end uh if we can ed on um uh, an aspect that you covered in your in your op-ed piece, uh, you revealed about the market testing, the way the way you tested uh, messages uh, for their, how they resonated with voters, and what it told you in respect of um, Barnaby Joyce, for example, and Scott Morrison. Yeah, and and I think that uh, most people would have had would have shared our assumptions halfway through twenty twenty one that the most toxic brand. Uh, of the Liberal National Coalition was Barnaby Joyce. And so we entered these campaigns thinking that uh, associating the brands of of the local candidates with Barnaby Joyce would be the most damaging message for them. So we thought we'd go into it with a message, vote Dave Sharma, get Barnaby Joyce, or vote Josh Frydenberg, get Barnaby Joyce. Um, but the beauty of, of, of a digital first campaign is is you don't have to be led by your gut. You can actually have very sophisticated ways to test these messages uh, and research it with very large sample sizes, much larger than a focus group. And when we did that, we found that, uh, to our surprise, it seems more obvious in hindsight because uh, b- because this became the narrative platform for the entire election, um, but at the time, to our surprise, we found that Scott Morrison was even more toxic than Barnaby Joyce. And so... Uh, he became the albatross we hung around the necks of the the liberal uh, incumbents in the seats, and and the message became vote Dave Sharma get get Scott Morrison. And um, look, they didn't uh, they didn't realise that. One of my favourite anecdotes was um, you know some uh, some comedians were driving around uh, mobile billboards in in Wentworth with a photo of Scott Morrison with his arm around Dave Sharma saying, how good is Dave, Uh, as a way to attack Dave Sharma. (laughs) Obvious to all who saw it. Other than Dave Sharma, he actually ran into the mobile billboards 
uh, took a photo of them and then posted it on his own social media saying, I don't know who you are, but thanks for the free publicity. So (laughs) for me, it just showed how out of touch they were with what was going on in their electorate and how much on the nose uh, Scott Morrison was and, and how much their brand was tied up uh, in Scott Morrison's brand, and, and and obviously we saw the results of that on election night. Yeah, Maria, just a final word from you. Uh, I guess that raises the 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 question: Why? I mean, and this is something that political historians will will uh, ponder for a long time, I guess. But why did they stick with Scott Morrison when he became such a liability? I mean, here we had a situation where the prime minister could not go into the territory, most treasured treasured territory of the of the Liberal Party. Because he was un- he was so unpopular, he was a vote turnoff. He'd got them on the wrong side of uh, voters on a whole range of questions: environment, integrity, women, uh, sort of needlessly in some cases. Uh, and and here he was, so unpopular. Well, why did they stick with him and sort of go over the cliff? Some of their best and brightest going over the cliff with him. Well, I know not everyone agrees with me, but I, I think it's simply the rules the the rules to to knife the Prime Minister uh, made it significantly harder. Um, We sort of saw exactly what it would look like to generate the number of signatures required when Mm. Malcolm Turnbull forced the Liberal Party to stab him in the front. Um, So, yeah, that's my elegant explanation. Well, I suppose it works if you, even if you think of John Howard uh, in in 2007, it's pretty oh, obvious I, I just by think the there was a loyalty to John Howard that I'm I'm not sure that was necessarily there for Scott well, Morrison. We haven't got time to talk about it now, but but you know I do recall that he tasked uh, Alexander Downer with sounding out the cabinet as to whether he should go back in um, during 2007. Um, I think it was around the time that uh, Sydney yeah. was hosting APEC, and it was. And, and um, you know, Downer came back and said, "Look, you know the view is yeah, you should probably should go." Because they thought, you know, if we renew now, maybe we've got a chance of of putting up a new leader against Rudd, who was ascendant at that point as the opposition leader. And um, Howard's response was, well, I'll go, but I won't make it a secret that you made me go. And it just put them in the position where they would have to own having effectively knifed him, and they didn't want to do that, and that was the end of that. Extraordinary, extraordinary moment. But, yeah, I mean, loyalty probably, and as you say, in this case, loyalty and rules. Yeah, I mean, he, he introduced new rules. That was one of the first things Scott Morrison did was was introduce new rules to ensure stability. And if you look around the world, like rules do matter. Mm. They, they are directly correlated with leadership turnover. Yeah, yeah. I noticed uh, just as an aside, uh, speaking of rules and, uh, and instability, that Israel is going for its fifth election in three and a half years. Uh, wow. <laughs> it's just chaos. Ed, Copa, thanks so much for being with us on Democracy Sausage. It's just been absolutely fascinating. A delight to listen to your um, fantastic, excellent uh, critique of, uh, of what happened inside the campaigns and uh, help us understand what was a pretty seismic election. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks, Maria. It was great chatting to you. I could talk about these things for hour, hours. It was an amazing shift that we saw. Yeah. And, Maria, thank you. We'll see you again next week, of course, when we'll have more Democracy Sausage. Bye.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.